Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Um, so welcome everybody and um, welcome to another one of our practice manager update webinars we're delighted to see you here and delighted that you'll be listening um, on a podcast or watching us on the recorded webinar so my name is louise greenwood i'm director of education here at wessex lmc's and i'm delighted to be joined by lisa harding a director of primary care and dawn Childcraft, a deputy director of primary care i'm particularly delighted that dr will howard is with us today one of our medical directors and will's going to particularly talk about um, safe working which is later on in the agenda but hopefully we'll butt in with anything else he feels interesting and relevant and do ask him any questions whilst he's here as usual, we're recording the session, as I say, so we're available as a podcast later. And um, we do have some slides, so it will be available as a recorded webinar as well. Please, as I always ask you, please to use the Q&A box um, for any questions that are relevant to topics that we're talking about right now or anything that pops into your head that you'd like some um, advice on or like to discuss other things or just a point of information for other practice managers or for us which is always useful um and um anything as we try and always do answer when we can if we don't know the answer we'll absolutely admit we don't know the answer go and find out and we'll put it on and we'll put the answer on the website when we um, put the um publish the recording of the podcast so hopefully that's straightforward and um, we're delighted that some of you are with us today but we do know there's lots of holiday we hope that those of you who are on holiday are having a wonderful time and dodging the raindrops as we speak so we're going to start straight off with lisa um and i think you're going to talk a little bit about online access yes thanks louise so i'm, I'm going to talk uh just briefly about online access and specifically the 104 coding and um apologies to those of that have already read our newsletter last week we did we did have an article in there about it which i'm just going to run through again partly because we've got a little bit more detail and also just partly because we know some people are having some difficulty receiving our our newsletter so forgive me if you've read uh or seen some of this already um but we wanted to talk about the um 104 exclusion co code on gp records um so you'll know that this snowmed exclusion code called 104 is only applicable to individuals identified at risk or who have decided to opt out of prospective record access um, and that the deadline of 31st of October is coming up relatively quickly around um, access to the to the medical records so there's lots of information coming out um, we just wanted to clarify that if an EMIS practice doesn't opt in to have the script run before the 31st of October um, then the practice will need to individually turn on prospective access to all patients in order to meet their contractual requirements of offering new health information to all patients unless of course any of those exceptions around people opting out or inappropriate access apply. Um, so we understand that there are still two opportunities for EMS practices to book a slot for prospective record access enablement. Um, there's an opt-in form, which I'll, I'll try and pop in the chat. Um, as I say, that's for EMS practices and they can select an available date. Um, so there's still time to do that, um, to request enablement in early September. And the deadline for that is the 23rd of August. And then, then there's one more date, we believe, in October. Um, once the opt-in form is received from a practice, the programme has the ability to check and make sure the practice system is ready. The programme will check data and offer direct advice to those practices who have configuration and 104 codes that might need addressing before the switch on date. Um, so that's EMIS practices. And just with regard to TPP practices, um, TPP practices that are ready to switch on prospective record access 
are able to update their systems themselves easily and at a time that suits them. And there are instructions in the user guide that, again, I'll try and put in the chat um, that people can access. The other source of really good information is the Futures platform. I, I see there's a lot of activity on there at the moment with people posting lots of questions. And I noticed that the NHS team, NHSC team, do seem to be responding to those questions quite quickly. Um, Michael Costa in particular, who seems to be one of the lead people um, nationally. So if you've got any questions, that's a good place to go as well. Um, and I think we've previously covered, I think Dawn did an update a little while ago about how to access the Futures platform. But any queries, any problems around access, come to us and we'll, we'll try and um, signpost you to, the, to more information. So that was just up on that one. Thank you, Louise. Thanks. Thanks, Lisa. And we've got um, Adam Tuckett, who has been really helpful to us in the past, um, advising us on our online access, answering any sort of question. So he's coming to this practice manager update webinar in September. So do um, come to this and listen to him. Um, so obviously give us any questions in advance if you want to, if you've got any particular issues, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep the momentum going on this. It feels like we talked about it for a long time, doesn't it? And we, we keep mentioning it, but we know it's an anxiety and we want to make it as easy as possible for you. So um, as Lisa says, do come to us with any, any queries and we've got some Adam coming in September. Um, just the next item is just a, um, just a short one on the Oliver McGowan Mandatory Training on Learning Disability and Autism. NHS England have just released a new film that you might be interested about, which has been co-designed and co-produced by people with aut autism and with learning disabilities. Um, as you've mentioned before, all GP practices in England must ensure their staff receive training in learning disability and autism. And this requirement was in the Health and Social Care Act of 2022. The government's preferred training programme is the Oliver McGowan Mandatory Training on Learning and Disability and Autism, but the Act itself doesn't specify a training package or a course for staff. I'm just going to read you what CQC have said. So they've said, when assessing the quality of care provided by a service, we will check that staff are competent to deliver care and treatment to all people using services, including those with a learning disability and autistic people. We do not tell you specifically how to meet your legal requirements in relation to training. You are responsible for ensuring your staff are appropriately trained to meet the requirements of the regulations. So just to highlight, it is important that your staff have learning disability and autism training it does not have to be the Oliver McGowan training I know I all our ICBs are doing different things about this but it's just to let you know and I think it's particularly important if you've got CQC coming in that you've got an awareness and your staff have got an awareness and just because we thought it would be interesting um our joint CEO, Dr. Laura Edwards, recorded a podcast yesterday with one of the GPs in our area who's also a learning disability and autism specialist. And the podcast really cover um, some practical tips about how you and your staff might be able to make the patient journey easier for patients with autism and learning um, disabilities. And they talked about the sensory box with ear defenders. And actually, that's so why I listened in. I was just pressing the record button for them. It was actually really interesting. And I think they're only sort of 20 to 30 minutes long each. There's one on autism and one on um, learning disabilities. So I would suggest they might be something that'd be helpful to listen to. We'll pop them out and um, we'll publish in the next couple of weeks. Um, so just keep an eye on those sort of things. But as I say, it's just an awareness of what's going on and the conversations that are about um, the Oliver McGann training at the moment. Okay, so I think we're moving on now to Dawn, and we're going to talk about um, pneumococcal vaccine, I think. 
Yes, thanks, Louise. This is only um, a small item as well. Um, just a little polite reminder. Um, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, do know and remember that back in June 2021, uh, the Numo vaccine moved to central procurement, which means you didn't need to buy any more, but you did need to order it via Inform. Um, and practices were advised to please use up your local supply and claim for that as you usually would. Um, and then start to order through the central procurement process on Inform. We have been advised by public health, uh, NHS England public health teams, that there are still a few claims trickling through for the uh, Pneumovax uh, vaccine. Uh, that's not the item of service, to be clear. This is the actual vaccine uh, cost. Um, and that should actually no longer be the case anymore because of the central procurement. So they have said, I'm afraid that they're no longer going to pay any further claims for the pneumococcal vaccine. Um, I would suggest, of course, there may always be exceptions and those we would suggest are looked at on a case by case basis. But just in case uh, you did miss that at some point, it is now centrally procured. So please order through Inform. Your claims probably won't be paid anymore. Thank you. Thanks, Dawn. And um, that's really helpful to know. And just those of you who aren't aware, there's a change to the Shingrix programme. We ran a webinar with over 200 HCAs came on that and nurses on Monday, which was great. Um, the recording is available and more information is on our website. So we do have information for that. And we'll make sure we put the link of, um, for that webinar with um, with the publication and put the podcast out. So, um, yeah, thanks, Dawn. That's great. Um, I think we're going to talk about qualified GP registrars now, Lisa. Yes, thank you. And I just really wanted to make sure that people have seen there was a BS, BCSE bulletin that came out yesterday and there was uh, just an entry in there about um, GP registrars who are qualifying and joining the practice. So obviously uh, lots of GP registrars completing their training and due to qualified this month. And just a reminder that if you're employing a newly qualified GP registrar and they're not already they haven't already applied and been accepted onto the performance list, they can't work in the practice. So PCSC is saying, please um, ensure that GP registrar completes and submits their application as a priority because they are experiencing high volume of late applications. Um, there is a guide that's on the PCSE website. And again, I can put that in the chat. Um, so it was just really to, to make sure that people were aware of that, given that we, we do quite often get a few calls each August um, when people have slipped through the net. Thank you, Lisa. And just to mention that um, Will was involved in recording um, a podcast just recently on IMG. So IMG is International Medical Graduates, so someone who's trained to be a doctor um, outside the UK. How to welcome them as um, a host practice and also for the IMGs themselves, what it feels like to be coming suddenly into this country and working as a doctor. So there's also a coming out in the next couple of weeks. It might be quite interesting for you to listen to those. Before we go on, um, Will, to the section your section on safe working, we've just got a query and it might be worth just covering now, Lisa. You've probably seen that in the QA about e-miss practices. So it just says so e-miss practices are being forced to opt in by a fixed date due to the the system limitations. There is still the legal IG data guardian questions that haven't been answered. Do you have any comments on that, Lisa? So um so yeah, I think the option is either you 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 opt in and fill out the form, or 
you have to do a huge amount of work yourselves. Um, so that so that's the option available to practices. So it does feel a difficult situation. I think that the BMA uh, still have some concerns around some of the IG and safeguarding elements, which they're continuing to look at. They have, the BMA have just published a slightly updated position statement on their website, which I'll just um, have a quick look at as we're talking, as Will's talking, and just see if they cover that off in any detail. If so, I'll pop it in the chat now. Um, but we'll try and find about a bit more information in terms of BMA position on particularly safeguarding an IG. Lovely. Thank you very much, Lisa. So, Will, I think we're coming to you now and you're going to talk to us a little bit about safe working. I certainly am. Thank you very much. And I'm going to try and share my screen. So there has been a huge amount of talk about safe working and um, the GPs idealistically go, let's implement safe working. But the reality of safe working and the BMA's policy on what safe working actually is, actually can translate into some very difficult conversations on the ground. And we know that often practice managers are going to be the people that take the brunt of those conversations, which makes it incredibly difficult. So we wanted to have a conversation with you as practice managers and teams to understand what this might actually look like and try and work out what those grumbles might be. And part of this is something where we want to hear what you've got to say about it so that we can try and answer any questions. So please, we'd really appreciate it if you can add into the chat um, anything in particular that just helps us uh, understand your problems with it, any questions that you might have so that we can help you solve them. But most importantly, ideologically, what is safe working? Now, some of you may already know all about this. One of my colleagues, Ed Rendell, who's one of the medical directors here as well, presented at the Innovations Conference a, a longer piece about safe working. Um, and we wanted to just bring you what it actually means, but then how can we implement it on the ground? So safe working is um, a series of things that NHS England has asked us to do. And these include the following. Moving to 15-minute appointments, a safe number of contacts each day for your clinicians, implementing waiting lists, involving your patient participation group in, a, um, in the process, measurement of workload by recording all patient contacts, uh, rejecting external unresourced workload, such as secondary care and other external organizations, practice list closure, focusing on core general practice, Practice, for example, reviewing your locally commissioned services and are they actually providing value for money for you as a practice? Are they profitable in inverted commas? And reviewing continuing with the primary care network, Des. Wow, what a list the GPC from the BMA have given us to try and implement. And I think most of us would read that list and go, that looks impossible. But I quite like the idea of some of them. And I think this is a list of things that the BMA have suggested we might look to do, but actually... We can't do all of them. So we're here to discuss what you might try and do on the ground. Importantly, why are we trying to do this? What is this about? Well, firstly, this is the BMA's view. So this is a policy that's been placed upon uh, the BMA by um, the General Practitioners Committee and the uh, National Conferences of LMCs is to try and implement some form of safer working. And that is in the context of the environment in which we are currently working. And the environment we're working in is one of rising demand, falling number of GPs, um, and external pressures to provide access, access, access. We're also being demanded to provide safety, safe working. And how can we provide clinically safe work when we're also seeing more and more patients? That doesn't add up. Um, and then the other thing that's been raised, which I think is very pertinent, is why wouldn't we want to be safer working? Why wouldn't we want to provide safety for 
the clinicians, for our teams, and also for our patients. And I'll give you an example of the safety. For me, safety's come a long way. The NHS was around in the late 1940s, and safety has come a long way since then. And here's an example of modern safety compared to old safety. On the left is Wembley Stadium in the early 1900s, um, overwhelmed and crammed with people with no safety. And we all know what happened in the end with stadiums when they became overcrowded is disasters happened and lots of people died as a result of it. And on the right-hand side is a very modern stadium. It's actually the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium that is one of the most recently designed stadiums in the UK with high safety levels. You can see it looks almost clinical in its nature, although it is empty, I might note. As soon as you put people into any clinical environment, it starts to look a bit of a mess. However, um, I think it's a good example of how far things have come in the modern world of safety and what our expectations are. You've only got to look at the car you drive now compared to the car you that may have been driven by your parents in the 40s and 50s to consider how far safety has come. So, if we're going to cut down those first number of um, messages that I put in that first slide, which is a long list of things that we might choose to do, the General Practitioners Committee um, have said to us, the executive team have said, these are the things that actually we'd like you to genuinely think about. Most importantly, number one thing, this is patient and GP safety. So it's been well recognised that 25 contacts per day is safer for GPs and for patients. It helps with recruitment and retention, and we have specific examples of that being the case. And that 15-minute um, appointments do help with proper care navigation. And we, I think most clinicians will recognize that we end up practicing sticky plaster medicine when we're practicing quickly, and we're not actually helping patients find the help that they really need. We're not going to suddenly, however, make our practices implement safer working in its entirety. This is a slow and incremental change, and it's going to be important to engage with your patients, hopefully via your PPG, via your website, and via patient communications. And then very importantly, especially for the partners that own and are running the business and for the practice managers that are going to have to answer those questions from the partners, this is all contractual and therefore allowed. You're not going to get into trouble doing it. And if you do, then you please come to us because we will represent you. So how do you go about doing it? I think everybody has said to us on one occasion or another when we talk about safe working, it seems like a really good idea, but how can we possibly do it when our phone lines are jammed and our urgent care surgeries are 100 plus patients long on any given day? So an example that was read out to me um, on a call was one about a practice near Sheffield. And it struck you because this is a practice that had done this because they had done it ahead of the game and they'd recognized a problem with demand and how they were going to manage their own demand. And they had started this process some five years ago before safe working became uh, a, a set of words that we're now trying to implement. They started this five years ago and took steps one at a time to try and make the service that they were providing safer and better for staff and for patients. They decided to do it because they were getting a large number of complaints. They were starting to get local councillors involved and MPs involved in um, telling them that the care they were providing was very poor. And they had GPs that were leaving, nursing teams that were leaving and reception teams that were unhappy and therefore difficult to fill the roles with. So they took steps very slowly, one at a time, and over a five-year period have turned their workload around. And the steps they took in the first six months they looked at the number of doctors that were normally delivering care in urgent care, 
And they looked at what would be safe for the number of those doctors to provide, looking at the considering the 25 patients per day model, and they capped their urgent care lists. They changed routine appointments to 15 minutes. They provided new admin and visiting time to rotors. And in routine surgeries, they changed those to 25 patient appointment contacts per day. If they got complaints, and this is the one that's slightly difficult, and I'm going to come on to this in a little while as well, they did suggest that patients should complain to the MP if there's a lack of capacity. This is a policy that the government has imposed upon us, and therefore it's really important that we consider that. This is a uh, Department of Health issue, not your local practice issue. But as I say, I'm going to come back to that in a minute because it's never as easy as that. And I think you guys as practice managers, I know, get it in the neck from the patients. But importantly, five years on, they felt that this had genuinely worked in small steps over a period of time. And five years is a long time in any practice, but they now had star, excellent staff retention. They now found it easy to recruit. They were meeting for coffee and lunch times, and they had time for non-clinical development sessions. Dare I say, education within your own practice for your um, teams, your staff, your doctors. And I think that's very important when we look at the amount of administrative work that we all have to do. Giving those clinicians time to implement that work is important. And then finally, they said very strongly, the policy, the end point was about the safety of the patients and the sustainability of their business. They understood why they were needing to do this and it took time, but they felt that they then had general practice, which had become a safe, pleasant place to work where teams were invited to come and work and looked for work in that practice as opposed to others in the same area where they were having still the same struggles that they had previously had. So, how can we put this into action in our practices? Well, focusing on the journey, not the destination, um, that's a little bit of management speak. Actually, what I mean by that is, what are you going to do over the next few months, not what's it going to look like in five years? If you can try and say, I'm going to try and do this in the next six months, we're going to try and cap our urgent care lists. It's an easy achievable step or a stepping stone towards the final destination. And focusing on that little step will make the final endpoint feel slightly more achievable. Bite-sized chunks, you might say. It's important to be very clear in your communication to staff about what they should be saying to patients. Again, a lot of the feedback we receive is, but what about the 26th patient who phones up? Well, if your practice list is full and that problem is not urgent, according to a set of rules or guidelines you may have made for your staff, then there needs to be very clear and repeatable messaging that your teams can give to patients. And so designing scripts for staff to use when capacity, capacity has been reached is important. You need to make start, uh, sure that all your staff do stick to that process. And, and when I say all the staff, I mean mainly doctors. Um, because it's very important that those are the ones that tend to misbehave. And you need to try and ensure and persuade those clinicians as well as non-clinicians to stick to that process. You do need very clear leadership from the partners and from the practice manager to make sure that everybody understands why it's being done, what's the process by which it's being done, and contractually that they are allowed to do this within your organization. And then that leadership also needs to make those uh, make it clear with your PPG about why and how this might be being done. And then teamwork. Actually, the whole process of this is to make a better work environment. I've been a partner in a practice for 22 years. 
thing that makes me go back are the people, the team, uh, my work family. And um, if I'm really honest, if you're going to make teamwork better, then design in that team time. And that may be things as simple as shared coffee and lunch breaks. And if you look at all the things I've mentioned about this, actually, you're probably already doing a significant number of them already. And as such, um, if you're doing some of them already, what will be your next step? If you've already given some admin time to doctors and nursing teams, what can be your next step? Um, and I think it's just taking off those bite-sized chunks. So the frequently asked questions. Now, um, Louise asked me to put this in, quite reasonably so. She challenged me and said, yes, but what if? What, what, are, our, what are our patients going to do? What are we going to expose our teams and our reception teams to? Well, how do we handle the grumbles from patients? So I did a bit of asking around practices that have implemented some of that. And they say that in, it, in their experience is that initially there's quite a lot of people who are irritated but that rapidly drops off as people become used to the message. But the messaging must be consistent and it's about safety. It's not about, sorry, we're full, you can't come and see us. It's saying we've reached our safe limit and, um, and, and having a very clear set of messaging. And also being clear about how you signpost patients to other services. And that does include 111. That is contractually reasonable. Um, and we are having negotiation with all the ICBs in our area about that process. And then considering other services, such as walk-in centres, minor injury units, um, and your extended access provider, if that's not you. Equally, it's not a blanket no. You're not saying no to every single patient who phones up or walks through the door. There must be a process which you have risk assessed within your organisation about saying a possible yes to certain types of presenting problems, at young people, palliative care, and so on. What if the clinicians don't do all do the same thing? I kind of mentioned that. The partners, I think, must own it strong leadership and making sure that everybody is doing the same thing and acknowledging that not all staff will be comfortable initially, but keep reiterating and gently supporting them in delivering safe working. Um, who do we say no to? What a simple one, this. Any patients that you consider beyond your safe limits that are clinically reasonable to leave till the following day or redirect to an alternative service. Um, commissioners for additional work demands. And I think that's where we come in as an LMC. We spend a huge amount of our time, I think it's fair to say, Lisa, that uh, redirecting and advising practices on what they should do and also going back to ICBs and secondary care providers saying, you don't need to do this as a practice. You can't keep asking practices to do this. And that includes unnecessary paperwork, filling out forms for secondary care who could just as easily have filled in the form themselves and so on, considering what's contractual and what's not contractual. Um, and where do we even start? So for me, the first part of this is going as a partnership to a partner's meeting and owning it and saying, this is where we want to start this process and ensuring that you write a risk assessment document that demonstrates you've considered that risk um, and managed that risk and supported staff in making clear decisions. Um, the reality, it's not easy. It's going to take time. Some patients won't be happy. Isn't that the same as now? Some staff aren't going to be happy, but isn't that the same as now? You're probably doing some of this already, but what else can you do? You need to do something with the capacity issues and the safety issues that we are currently being challenged by. Um, so as I say, we must do something. What we currently do isn't safe for us or for patients. 
politicians aren't going to help us become any safer. This is within our control. It's not breaking any regulation or contract. And CQC have currently not negatively commented on any inspected practices where this has been um, implemented, as long as there is a clear risk assessment and a linked process. So I know I've rushed through that and I apologize for that, but I think it's an important topic that we wanted to raise with um, the key people who might make this work in your practice. I speak from some level of personal experience in my practice where I really feel that implementing small parts of this has made the working day more acceptable. And it's given and empowered me as a clinician the ability to say, no, we're full now. Actually, we've reached my safe capacity. Whereas you'd have asked me that five years ago, I'd have said, no, you've got to add them to list. And we didn't even ask ourselves whether it was safe or not. So asking ourselves the question is a key part of this. So. Louise, um, Lisa, can I ask you if there's anything in the question and answer session or the chat area or the chat that we can perhaps raise? There is actually, Will. Are you all right to take your screen down now, Will? Yeah. That would be good. Thank you. That was really, really useful. So a couple of questions have come straight in about what do we, what do we, where do we signpost patients after the urgent list is closed as 111 and also MIU send patients back to us? That's a, it's, it's a great example of the round and round that the system has developed. If we're saying we're full, they're saying it's a primary care problem. And this is something that I think is entirely reasonable to raise. It's something that doesn't yet have an answer, but that we need the rest of the system to understand that we have a limit somewhere. The unfortunate thing is the, the patients will be the victims within this. But if we keep doing this, we're the victims within this process. So if we keep just adding more and more and more patients and not representing to the system that there is a problem, then where do we draw the line? And in some ways, we're our own worst enemy in keeping doing what we're doing. Now, believe you me, I genuinely understand that I work in a practice where we'll say to the, the, our reception teams, listen, I'm sorry, we're full. We need to redirect that patient to 111. And then you get a call back an hour later from the same patient saying, I phone 111, they phone me back and said I needed to come to my practice and I needed to be seen with two hours. A couple of points there. Firstly, patients often tell us what they think we need to hear in order for them to get an appointment. When you see the 111 report come through, often it says something different to what a patient may have said to us. So do consider making sure you can see any 111 reports before you perhaps offer the patient an appointment. Not, not always possible, depending on the responsiveness of your own 111 provider. And secondly, um, uh, if a patient does phone back and say, 111 have told me they need to, I need to be seen. Actually, we provide a service 12 hours a day and out of hours, or slightly less than 12 hours a day, out of hours provided at a different time. I know that towards the end of the day, there is a point at which I know I'm not going to be able to see that person. Therefore, they probably need to be contacted by out of hours, actually. Please phone back 111 after hours, after half past six. That is contractually okay. Um, and um, although it's not something the system likes us to do, it is something that will highlight the capacity issues that we do continue to have. Okay, thank you, Will. There's something coming in, into the chat, actually. I'm not entirely sure what it means. Just what about pathology? Um, so loads of blood test results coming in for pathology labs. It's a very good question. Um, I think that part of the role of clinicians is to manage pathology, you manage your own results. They're almost part of the same part of care. That if, you're, if I've seen a patient and I've ordered some blood tests, actually, I see it as my GMC responsibility to manage the outcomes from those blood tests. 
organizationally, you need to consider blood tests that haven't been ordered specifically by a doctor, but that are part of long-term conditioning or medication management. How do you as an organization ensure there is administrative capacity to deliver to that? Now, you may say, we need admin time. And that is saying, fine, we will give admin time to clinicians. Um, Or it may be that you look at alternatives to GPs traditionally doing it. Um, and there are some our staffs, for example, physicians associates who can manage and interpret blood results, especially the simple or more normal ones who are happily posting results in some areas. And um, as long as you have a policy to ensure that you 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 um, have risk assessed their skill sets and training to ensure they are part of that and doing it. So you've said there we're relying on a lot of locums who are not happy looking at results. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. And that leaves the responsibility with partners. Surely that means, therefore, that they are have slightly less capacity to see patients. You can't work everybody forever. Again, I would go back to the original part of this, though. This isn't something we're going to fix overnight and that you're not going to say, fine, let's get rid of all patients for all partners because they're so busy looking at blood results. You might say, I'll tell you what, we'll take one appointment off per partner in order to give them at least 15 minutes back that they're able to look at results. And then in another three months, we'll do another appointment and another one. And the glacial pushback will slowly improve the quality and the safety over time. It's a slowly, slowly process, isn't it? Um, So another question has come in, Will. Where practices are not even able to make appointments for the future, let alone on-the-day appointments, how do we deal with the complaints? Um, That is very much about a mismatch between the demands that patients are giving and the capacity that you as a practice can offer. Um, And that it depends very much on individual appointment systems. So I wouldn't want to comment and say how a practice runs its own appointment system. That is very individual. Equally, at the start of this, they said practices shouldn't have an urgent care list. I cannot imagine not having an urgent care list in my practice because there is absolutely no way I feel that our practice would be able to meet the demand of our patients without that urgent care list. However, we have reduced the number of patients on it and we ask our reception teams to then contact the duty doctor every time another patient phones to say, is this urgent? Now, that does mean a patient floats off into the unmet need cloud But that's the system's problem. And if we keep soaking up this relentless demand, it's not going to improve the outcome for either patients or general practice, because we all know what's happening in general practice is that doctors don't want to work here because it doesn't feel safe and it's overwhelming. So we've got to make some changes to try and make sure it's a place that people do want to work in. In terms of individualizing appointments and, and how you manage a patient that has complained, actually, We have information on our website about how to manage that complaint, but also thinking about a policy or a wording that you might have as a practice about the implementation of safe working that is your response to we reach safe capacity. A little bit like the old, um, the the aeroplane being overwhelmed, too many passengers on an aeroplane. We wouldn't forgive the airline if there was an accident as a result of that. Well, this is a similar kind of metaphor, and we're trying to make our, our practices safer places for everybody. 
but it's partly a, um, as a behavior change and it's a different mindset. We're so used to absorbing more and more and, and thinking we have to be the savior of everybody and everything coming in. And But it's it, it's it's not a necessarily a comfortable place to get into to start changing that mindset. It's, it, it's going to yeah. take a little while. Yeah, the practice in Sheffield that I mentioned five years ago, uh, they've said they do not get complaints about their capacity. They turn people away when they've reached capacity. They don't receive any complaints any longer. That's five years later, though. Yeah, long time. Um, just, I think, a comment more than anything else, Will. We all rely too much on locums. A balance needs to be made to Parliament to make it harder for GPs to be locums. I don't know. I think that that's something that as an LMC, we attend a conference. The conference directs policy, the policy that the GPC negotiate with the government on. And actually, if we if we take those type of things, uh, um, those type of ideas about um, locums, locum working, general practice, general practitioner careers, is actually trying to ensure that that we change the policy of government takes a bit of work, but we we can do that. That's kind of part of an LMC committee's role. The other bit of this is that actually, wouldn't it be nice if we can make the workplace a place that those locums want to go back to again and again and actually see their future careers there? So a lot of people have ended up becoming locums because they didn't, they couldn't tolerate the work intensity and the overwhelming nature of the work in general practice for long. And so they may have set out with the best intentions to be general practitioners or general practitioners or partners even in a business, but have left because they were completely personally overwhelmed by that. And I think that if we can make our work environment better, we won't need the well-being hubs and treatments for GPs. Actually, we want to make it a place where people don't need to be looked after in their place of work. And that would be my end point. If I could, if I could visualize one place, it would be to make the general practice workplace a desirable place to come to again. I like that, Will. I like that very much. And if the people are interested in this, are there any examples in our patch that you could suggest someone talks to? Or have you spoken to anybody in our patch who's you know, who's introduced this and, and how well did it go? It's always good to hear from on the ground, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I would very happily make introductions. I'd ask you to come to me directly via the office um, uh, email address. I would happily firstly give examples myself to anybody who wants to talk to me about it. Um, and secondly, then request if, if other practices who have implemented certain parts of it are happy to be make introductions electronically with others. Be happy to implement that. Thank you. And I know this is your end point, but we've got more things coming in now, I'm afraid. So just a couple more. Um, how does this tie in with the assessment of need at the first point of contact from the GMS contract? Good question. Um, so, yeah, this was the change in the GP contract that they, they recently wrote to us about where they said that there needs to be an assessment of need. They haven't defined what that assessment of need is. And as far as the BMA is concerned, the way in which our reception teams assess need has not defined yet, yet, um, means that we can say that if a patient phones up and the assessment team used the way in which they previously have done, which is ask the patient what the problem is, and then they perhaps, if they've reached safe capacity, speak to the duty doctor or speak to a clinician in charge, then um, that clinician is making a, an informed decision about what the information that's been provided to them is and can therefore redirect. Perfect. Um, and just a final comment, I think about locums. Locums aren't coming back. They now get all the pros and no cons. This alongside the agencies is costing practices and the NHS a fortune with public funds. And I think, as, as Will said, um, we might best take this up a little bit. So maybe that this is an anonymous attendee, which is absolutely fine. If you perhaps want to email me or, 
or email will directly happily take this up and have a perhaps a bit more of a conversation about it because when we're ever talking about anything to have real evidence is really helpful to say this is happening in my practice and that's re- really powerful so we'll certainly do that so do do the in contact we don't want to, to lose that um somebody's also said can we have will's slides please yes of course um, that's absolutely fine and we do hope that you can take them and use them and use them for a, a starting a discussion point in your practice and we'll come back to this um, every now and then we think it's useful it's a good discussion and it's just as I said it's, it's thinking and behaving in a different way and um, so thank you so much Will that's been really useful and we've hugely benefited from that great okay so we're going to go um, on to this one more oh Oh, that's fine. Okay, <laughs> it's fine. It wasn't an anonymous attendee, that's all, but it's, it's still a good question, Ben. So just come back, give us the information about the locums, and I think we'd like to take that forward because I think it's really important. And as I say, evidence is also really, really important for us to have on the ground rather than, as I say, a practice. It's great. Thank you. Um, just finally, we've got a question that came a little while ago. Is there any more news on the DDRB pay recommendations? We have been receiving letters from our nurse team as they've received correspondence from the RCN. I don't know whether um, Lisa or Will, you wanted to take that. So at the moment, all we know is the very limited information that we've seen on the gov.uk website and the press release that they issued, plus the BMA statement that we put out in the newsletter last week. So as far as I'm aware, there's absolutely no more information um, to go with that at all at the moment. So we don't know how, if, when, what, what quite is going to happen. So um, it's really difficult to know. I think we'd possibly just be speculating if we said anything else at this stage. Um well, I don't know if you want to add anything, but at the moment, unfortunately, it's sort of early days and we, we don't know anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the important part of that is the unknown and the devil with this will be completely in the detail, um, whether the money is going to be post dated, whether it's going to apply to just salary GPs, all staff partners. And the reality of all those questions means that we can't make any decisions. You can't make any decisions. Your partnerships can't make any decisions. So we are waiting with bated breath. And the moment that we get that information, um, we will, of course, scrutinise it because I think that's our role to scrutinise it on behalf of practices um, and then give you both the facts that have been presented and our opinion on it as an LMC. Thank you. Well, there's a comment. I wonder if it will be a 6% plus on costs. Otherwise, we will have to fund 25% of a 6% uplift. And I think all those sort of machinations are going around everybody's heads up in the moment. What are we going to do? What's it going to look like? What are the numbers are going to look like? And that's very, very difficult. The unknown is always difficult. The known's hard enough. Or when it's unknown, I think it's possibly even, even harder. Okay, so then we come to the end of the questions now. Just something that um, Lisa mentioned a couple of times that about the newsletter. We did put something about the DDRB uplift in the newsletter, but we are aware that our newsletters are going into a lot of your junk folders. So we're really sorry. We're trying to get that resolved. We're struggling to get it resolved, to be honest, but we are trying. But do keep checking your junk folder, and you might find that if you haven't had the newsletter with that information in, it might well be in your junk folder. So please keep an eye on that. And finally, um, when we announced the date of this today, of 2nd of um, August um, last week, um, what, there was a comment um, from one of you to say, actually, that's going to clash with the Hampshire Alibi ICB webinar that they're regularly running. Well, I'm delighted to say that although that had to run today because it was too late to change it, the ICB have said, no, no, we will, we will um, arrange our webinar around yours. So we're very delighted about that because we've run this webinar, so one o'clock on a Wednesday on alternate weeks for, well, we started in the middle of COVID, didn't we? So perhaps at the start of COVID and we're still going. So we're very pleased that uh, they've decided that that's the right thing to do because this is valuable to you. Um, so although we're recording it, 
we will keep going with our Wednesday occasional Fridays um, and hopefully that's still going to be useful for you. So we're going to be seeing you next time on the 16th of August at one o'clock. So we hope to see you then. Thank you very much for um, all your participation. It's been really, really, really useful today. A very good discussion. Thank you particularly for welcoming in and to Lisa and Dawn. And we'll see you again very soon. Take care. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Wessex LNC's supporting you and your practice.